0: Galatians chapter three. Hmm. This book kind of hits us all who've been Christians for more than a, a couple of years. And here's the problem for we have been Christians for a few years. We can come to the point where we think we actually know something. And it can get the best of our pride. And we can start rubbing everybody else's nose in it and trying to come across as spiritually superior. And that is called legalism. The problem with being a legalistic Christian is legal ties you to the law. We're no longer tied to the law. That's what the whole Galatian epistle is about. But is there anything more unattractive to the world than a legalistic Christian? You look at the Pharisees. Everybody kind of saw them for who they were. Spiritually high-minded, thinking too much of themselves kind of folks, you know, And when Jesus came, man, he just kind of undermined those guys because they had no love. They had no grace. There was no mercy. With those guys, it was the law, the law, the law. Well, what happened was Paul would come to these parts uh, throughout his missionary journeys, the parts of the Roman Empire, in particular, Galatia. Galatia was a special region. It is from central Turkey to the coastline of southern Turkey, which is back then called the Roman province of Galatea. Where we get the term Galatians Paul had gone there on his first missionary trip he first he and Barney remember Barnabas son of encouragement the Levitical priest who'd gotten saved well they went over to Cyprus where Barnabas had come from this little island just kind of just below Turkey right on the Mediterranean there and they made their way across the island and Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit I'm sure said you know we're close why don't we just jump across here take the ferry across and we'll we'll go up into Galatea it's just above us here And we'll share the gospel where it's never been shared before. I mean, that was always Paul's heart, wasn't it? To go where the gospel had never been before. He didn't want to build on another man's work. Jerusalem was already well populated with apostles. He wanted to go where nobody had ever heard the name Jesus before. Hmm. But God had already set the stage. Do you remember at Pentecost that's recorded for us? In the book of Acts, the first couple of chapters, remember the day of Pentecost where the disciples gathered together, there's this sound of, of mighty rushing wind, tongues of fire descend upon their heads, there, and the Holy Spirit has showed up. And all of a sudden they're speaking in unknown languages. And you go, what's the point of that? Because at that particular point in the Jewish calendar, when this massive religious festival was going on called Pentecost, which falls 50 days after what we call Easter, There were people once again gathered from all over the Roman Empire, speaking different languages and dialects. And so God baptized them all with his Holy Spirit and gave them the ability to communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ to each of these people in a language they understood. My native language is is English, although an Englishman would tell you, no, you don't speak English at all. You speak American, but you don't speak English. I barely speak English. I was raised in my youth Uh, in New York City, where they develop such a dialect, most people don't think they speak English anymore at all. They're very difficult to understand. You get somebody from Brooklyn who's been raised there the whole life, you have a difficult time talking to them. Funny, when I went out to California for the recent pastors conference, people were remarking what an accent I had. We're the only people in the country without an accent. We're we're, We're right in the middle of it all. We're between the left and the right coast, so I'm kind of thinking we're where the language should be but not everybody can communicate in the same language in the same way so god baptized these disciples and what happened is all of these guys that had this radical 3000 folks got saved at pentecost under a 3 minute preaching of of, of peter's you remember that well all of these folks went back home all over the roman empire so god had already set the stage for the spread of the gospel he already threw some seed out there. When James in chapter 1 describes the dispersion of the church, it, he uses a unique agrarian term, a farmer's term, and he says uh, to the 12 tribes that have been scattered throughout Pontus and Galatian Capodicea, scattered, the word is diaspora, through the scattering of seed. So you get the idea that God is the ultimate Johnny Appleseed. He's throwing seed. He's, he's throwing seed there. He's throwing seed. And that's what God did at Pentecost. He sent these people back out and they're throwing seed. Now the, the problem with seed is you don't know when it's going to come up and you don't know whether it's going to bear good fruit or, or bad fruit. That shouldn't be your concern or mine. The church's concern is to simply throw seed, throw seed. Don't worry about when it comes up. You pray for him, and who knows, when you share your faith with somebody or say something as minor, as God bless you today. You never know what seeds are planted or when they'll come up. When King Tutankhamen's tomb was finally unearthed in the pyramids of Egypt, they found that buried with him were not only his household servants by the hundreds, not only tons and tons of silver and gold, not only did he have the most ornate funeral mask that had ever been put on a dead guy, Not only did he have canoes and all sorts of war implements and stuff like that, and horses. I mean, this guy was buried with a whole bunch of stuff that would fill this room. One of the things they did find is bags of wheat, bags of wheat. And that was to keep him well supplied, I guess, in the afterlife once he made his way across the River Nile in the after... whatever. They had some mixed up theology, but the point is uh, some university researchers took some of that 4,000-year-old wheat and planted it and it grew. So you never know how long the seeds will stay where you've thrown them, but it's not your concern or mine when they come up don't try to harvest green grain if you're talking with somebody about the lord jesus and they seem really antagonistic and really resistant you just need to say to yourself green grain the fields are not the fields are ripe unto harvest but jesus didn't say try to force it down their throats that's trying to harvest green grain if they're not ready back off back off you've scattered what seed you could but not then is not the time to move in for the kill especially if you're a brand new christian you've got a 40-pound bible and you're trying to force feed it to them that's generally not taken well by the population but jesus planted seeds wherever he went his parables and his teachings and his disciples the miracles that he did all of these things were seeds that were planted well paul went where the seeds had already been sown up in galatea galatia if we can we can call it that And he just built upon the foundation that God had already built with these scattered people that were saved. Well, always on the heel of Paul, and three times on his three missionary trips, he went back to the Galatian churches. He loved these guys. He loved these guys, and he kept going back. And every time he did, he would find that Jewish legalists would come in after he had left... Trying to pull these converts back to Judaism, back to the law. Well, that's fine, this Jesus that Paul's preaching, but you know what? You also have to keep the law. You also have to be circumcised. You also have to keep the Jewish holy days. You have to do this, you have to do that. All of this legalism, and the people are going, hey, ve, that's kind of not what I signed up for. I thought Jesus was enough. <clears throat> Excuse me, Jesus is enough. So Paul, after establishing once again his apostolic credentials in the opening two chapters, chapter 3 brings us to the doctrinal portion of the Scripture. And you go, man, I don't don't know if I want to get into doctrine. That sounds theologically heavy. It's not. He's talking to a people that have been saved by grace through the blood of Jesus Christ, and now somebody is trying to pull them back to legalism and do's and don'ts and ritual and holy days and things you got to do. Well, being saved is fine, but you also have to keep communion. Being saved is fine, but when's the last time you were in a confessional booth? Being saved is fine, but were you baptized? Being saved is fine, but what church do you belong to? whoa! Well, 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 well. is Jesus enough? Yes. Yeah. He is the one who baptizes this into the body of Christ. It's the body of Christ, and can I tell you, when we get to heaven, there's not going to be a Baptist section or Presbyterian section or Catholic section and Calvary Chapel section. It's the body of Christ. We need to start seeing the body of Christ that way today instead of allowing Satan to pit one group of born again folks against another group of born again folks. They may have some minor differences with you. That's fine, but the issue to me is do they love Jesus? Do you love Jesus? Have you asked Him to be your personal Lord and Savior? Have you acknowledged Him as the Son of God who died on the cross to pay the penalty your sins, personally deserved? Do you believe that He rose from the dead? If you believe those things with all of your heart this evening, you're saved. You don't have to keep coming up and getting saved every Sunday. You are saved. Don't let Satan play a mind trip on you saying, well, you're saved, but I mean, you didn't tell the Catholic priest about it. Well, you may be saved, but did you you have Pastor Jim fill you out a card? Really? We don't have a formal membership here. Can you see Jesus? Or the disciples perhaps at Pentecost going, okay, you 3,000 folks, here's a card. I need you to fill out the card, name, and address, and email, because we need to keep in touch with you, you know. And by the way, this signs you up for the church newsletter, and we expect you to volunteer in Sunday school next Sunday. I'll bet you half of those 3,000 folks got saved would have said, yeah, I'm backing up. I don't want that. See, that's religion. That's adding something to the finished work of Jesus Christ. Didn't he say on the cross in one of his last sayings, it is? is finished you can't add to that but satan whispers in the ear of the long-term christian well you really know a lot now you should keep the law i mean you should tell people i don't cuss or chew or or dance or date girls that do great you're adding to what jesus has already accomplished he has imparted to you and i his holiness you can't improve upon that by keeping the law In fact, in in chapter three, what Paul's going to do is going to tell everybody the law served a purpose in the Old Testament. He's talking about the whole Old Testament. It served a purpose, but the law could not save you. Why? Why was the, let's think this through for a second. Why was the law given in the first place? What did the law tell us about God? That he's holy got some pretty high standards, would you say? Okay. So the law tells me he's a perfect God. He's holy. He's perfect in all he does. But as soon as I read that in the Old Testament, I'm condemned that I'm not perfect and I'm not holy. I'm a sinful man. Okay. So the law was acting like a mirror, if you will. This morning when I got up, this would horrify some of you, I went into the bathroom and I looked at myself in the mirror before I'd done anything. Scary. Hair going here, hair going there. Disheveled, a mess. Sleepy boogers in my eyes. Uh, Growth on my face. I mean, besides this. And I was going, "Ah, you need some help. The mirror could show me my condition but is powerless to do anything about it. I didn't pull the mirror off the wall and start trying to shave with it. I didn't hold the mirror close and rub it on my body saying, make me clean. It could show me my need, but it couldn't do anything about it. That's an exact parallel to the Old Testament law. It could show me that I'm a sinner, but it couldn't clean me. That wasn't the purpose of the law. That's not the purpose of a mirror. What was the purpose of the law? To tell me something about God. He's good and he's holy and he's perfect, and I'm not. But it's powerless to do something about my condition that's why the old testament sacrificial system was put in place it was a temporary shedding of innocent blood to cover over the sins of sinful people but it was temporary the new testament will make the argument if it was good and permanent you would have only had to sacrifice one time but you got to keep sacrificing every time you sin how many sheep do you have How many goats do you have? And when you've run out, where's the atonement for your sins? It's not tied to the law. The law was meant to show us that we're sinful and God is holy and he has set forth a holy standard that I can't keep. So while the law is good and holy, it condemns me as a sinner. We have broken the law. And I don't just mean the Ten Commandments. Although... Everyone in this room has broken all ten. I know you. I know you have. You just don't think you have. Jesus spoke to a crowd of people one time who didn't think they had broken the Ten Commandments either. And he said, you say that you've not committed adultery. Really? You ever looked lustfully at another person? Ooh. Now all of a sudden, you've just been convicted of the fact you haven't kept that commandment. Jesus said, you say that you haven't murdered, thou shalt not murder. That's part of the Ten Commandments. But then Jesus showed us the, the true intent behind the law. He said, have you ever, you ever hated anybody in your heart? You've broken the law. You know, so the law brings me to my knees and brings me to the place where I'm humble, I'm convicted of my sins, and I'm ready to Repent. That was the purpose of the law. It was to drive me to the foot of the cross because that's where grace was found. Grace wasn't found in the law. It set a standard I couldn't keep. It told me about a perfect and holy God who gave me a perfect and holy law, but the only flaw in the ointment, the only fly in the ointment, is I can't keep it, and none of us have. The Pharisees, that was the biggest mistake they made in the time of Jesus. They thought they had kept it, and they also thought that by the keeping of the law, they could earn salvation. They earn God's approval. I'm a choir boy. I'm doing this. I'm not, I'm not going to the dance places. I cleaned up my language. I did this. I did this. I, 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 I. That, that's an optical problem. That's an eye problem, isn't it? You can take the credit now for what? Cleaning up your own act? Then Christ died for what? If you could earn your way to heaven, if you could so keep the law of God that he was forced To give you eternal life because he owed you. I mean, can you just imagine God looking down and going, you know, they got me. You know, I I condemned them, but they're keeping the law. So I guess I got got to save them. My Bible says that God is not a debtor to any man. Okay? We can't earn our salvation because God's standard is perfection. When Christ came, he was the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. He became our sacrifice. He took my place on the cross. I didn't earn that. I don't deserve that. has nothing to do with keeping the law, but Jesus did keep the law. I mean, imagine this. At the close of his earthly ministry, he asked his enemies. Don't try this. Don't try this at home. He asked his enemies, which of you can accuse me of a single sin? Wow. Don't dare say that to anybody. They will tell you a long litany of sins that you and I have committed. But Jesus said that nobody answered a word, not even his own enemies. He led a perfect life. So when he died, it wasn't for his own sins, but yours and mine. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. There's nothing you can add to what Jesus has already done. You can accept him as your personal Lord and Savior and walk right into eternity. And hear something like this. Well done, good and faithful servant. Uh, but I can add nothing to that. There's a, there's a huge difference between grace and legalism. So Paul, starting in chapter 3, uh, talks to these people that have been tempted to go back to Judaism. And he says, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before your very eyes? Christ Jesus was clearly portrayed as crucified. I'd like to learn just one thing from you, verse two. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Believing, and the word faith is the same word in the Greek. One is a verb, one is a noun. By believing, pistuo, what you heard, faith you exercise your faith pistis same exact word one's the noun form one's the greek form are you so foolish after having begun with the spirit are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort literally by the flesh you can't add to the finished work of christ some of us have been christians for a while think we do well you know i gave this up for jesus like he owes you well i gave up this for the lord really he's indebted to you now I can't keep the law. I can't go back to that kind of legalistic thinking. The doctrinal portion of this letter fundamentally answers two questions. How are you saved? It's Jesus. And how are you sanctified? What does sanctified mean? Conformed to the image of Jesus in ever increasing measure. That's all sanctification means. You're becoming more holy, but it's not because you're trying harder. It's because of his Holy Spirit at work in and through you we become more like christ by surrendering more to his holy spirit not by trying harder to be get a handle on our sins you know you can't defeat the flesh by the exercise of the flesh christ has done that all for us we are saved by grace through faith that's what paul would remind the galatians But so were the people in the Old Testament. He'd already mentioned uh, later on in in chapter 3 there, starting in verse 6. Abraham is an Old Testament example. He's the father of the Jewish race. He wasn't saved by keeping the law. He predated the law by centuries. How was he saved? By grace, through faith. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. We believe God. We accept his promises. Fulfilled in Christ Jesus, it is credited to us as righteousness. I am righteous not because of the things I do, but the one I believe in. We all, and the reason it has to be that way is because you and I still mess up. I could be wrong. Is there anybody in here who has not sinned in recent memory? It's a sinful memory. It has to go. <laughs> yeah, there's so many things I forget. You know, talking, talking in Sunday's message, you know, last week I forgot to button a button on my shirt and my band members are dressing me and then Sunday I forgot my belt. You know, but there's some things I don't ever want to forget and that's that Jesus loved me. He died for me and I'm saved by believing in him and accepting the sacrifice that he's already made. I can add nothing to that. I can add nothing to that. Well, so he brings up Abraham and says, now think about this. He's the father of the Jewish race, but he wasn't saved by keeping the law. How can you be saved by going back to the law? And so he brings up a perfect example, a, a, <laughs> a brilliant example. Well, we're, our lesson this evening, as we finish out this chapter, begins in, in verse 15, as Paul cites uh, another example uh, after Abraham. Brothers, let me me take as an example from everyday life, just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant, literally, a last will and testament. That's the legal term that he uses there. Uh, Because no one can add to it or take away from it once it's been duly established. So it is in this case, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture does not say, and to his seed seeds, plural, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. This is a fascinating argument. This to me is why it is critical that you understand every word on the page of your Bible is reliable and represents the Word of God. It is the Word of God. And in the original languages as they wrote it down in Hebrew or Aramaic, in the case of the New Testament, in Koine Greek, the very words they wrote down were the words of God, infallible, inspired of his Holy Spirit. They weren't the writings of men or prophets. But as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, scripture tells us, they wrote these things down. So those original autographs that, that we have very, very close and near and dear copies in the manuscript evidence that we have today, it was the word of God. And so every jot, every tittle, Jesus said, not even a jot or a tittle will pass away from the law until it's all fulfilled who fulfilled it? Jesus did. But every jot or tittle, without going into the nuances of the Hebrew language, he, there, is a, a, there is a device that's translated tittle, and it represents the smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It looks like an apostrophe, only it goes up off the line. It's up, up high, but it is a legitimate letter in the Hebrew alphabet, but you could miss it easily. And then crossing your T, we say crossing your T's and dotting your I's. In other words, every letter is important. Every word is important. Everything that God said is important and is so reliable that Paul is about to make an argument on whether it's singular or plural. Wow. That means the word of God better be reliable or he can't use that kind of an argument. The word of God that we have is as reliable as it gets. So in, in verse 15, God confirmed his covenant with Abraham The law was added hmm, 430 years later, but it didn't void the first covenant of grace. Just because the law came later didn't void the covenant promises that God made with Abraham. A covenant of grace. So in the giving of the law to Moses, it didn't disrupt the covenant that God had made with Abraham and his seed. But in verse 16, where Paul makes this whole argument based on the singular versus the plural, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed, singular. Scripture does not say to his seeds, meaning many, uh, but to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. The whole argument hinges on plural versus uh, the, the singular. Keep your finger here but I want you to flip over to Genesis 3.15. Genesis, first book of the Old Testament, chapter 3. You know the story. It was the fall of man. God is walking through the garden in the, in the coolness of the day, and, and Adam apparently is nowhere to be found. And they had been apparently in the habit of going for a walk daily. Imagine walking with God in the garden of Vienna. I could dig that. Every day, just go for a walk with him soon. Amen to that, Ty. Soon. Well, anyway, uh, they, they, uh, they wind up at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Eve eats of it when tempted by Satan. She gives some to her husband who was right there with her and never said a word. You just want to smack him, don't you? Why didn't you speak? You're, you call that spiritual headship, Adam? What is your deal? Lay down and play dead? Anyway, God shows up and, and he confronts him and, and said, uh, you know, what'd you do, Adam? And Adam says, uh, uh, you know, it's that woman you gave me. Okay, great. Passing the buck. So he turns to Eve and says, Eve, what'd you do? Well, you know, it, it, was, it was the serpent. The serpent tempted me and I ate of this stuff. So finally, God looks to the serpent and says, well, somebody please tell me the truth? Satan, what did you do? And Satan's the only one of the three that tells the truth. He says, I tempted them, and they sinned. They sinned. You could just hear a serpent hissing that out, can't you? And there's a lot of S's that go with the original Hebrew language in that pattern. But part of the judgment of God is found in verse 14. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are, uh, cursed are you above all the livestock and all of the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life, and I will put enmity, hatred... Between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers, it is singular. Between your offspring, singular, and her offspring, singular. He, look at that, now he goes from not only is it singular, but it's a masculine pronoun. He, whoever this seed of the woman is, will someday crush your head and you will strike his heel. In other words, you will deliver a mortal blow to Satan and he will deliver a temporary blow to this seed of the woman. It's a reference to Jesus Christ. Yes, Satan had him crucified. Wounds to be sure. But by the cross he triumphed over the devil and secured the devil's uh, hell-bound eternity. So that's what the promise was. But the whole argument there in Genesis 3.15 hinges on singular or plural, just like it does in this dialogue between God and Abraham. God said, it is through your seed, singular, that these blessings will come. They came through Jesus Christ, who was, a, who was the one who told us all about love and grace and mercy and forgiveness, and all of those things were found in Christ. So he's saying that this is the fulfillment of those promises that were given. Masculine in Genesis 3.15 as well as singular. I, I love that. So the promise that Satan gets his someday go all the way back to the opening chapters of the first book of the Bible. Isn't that cool? Someday. New Testament promises us that someday soon Jesus Christ will put Satan beneath your heels. Oh yeah. The blessing of Abraham is Jesus Christ in fellowship with God that he makes possible. It is glorious. We're back in Galatians 3 then. Verse 17. What I mean is this the law, introduced 430 years later, does not set aside the covenant previously established. 430 years was the time that Israel was in Egypt. Uh, you'll remember the story in Genesis where Joe. Oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Nope. They don't. Oh boy. <laughs> That's a can of worms I'm not sure you want to open. The calendar has been changed so many times, but to this present day, the, the Hebrews uh, go by a lunar calendar of 360 days a year versus we're going by the solar calendar of 365 and a quarter days a year. That's why every fourth year we have a leap year. We have to add an extra day because our rotational period around the sun is not exactly 365 days 365 and a quarter actually it's a bit of a fraction from that Hebrews don't use that calendar they're, right now they're in the year 55 something, 5582 or something like that I, I don't, didn't look up the exact number but they're on a different calendrical system you'll remember that they had uh, come out of Egypt and then much much later when they were taken captive into Babylon both Egypt and Babylon were on a lunar calendar Okay. But as you and I count years, what Paul is saying is they spent the exact number of years that they spent with there was 430 years. You'll remember Jacob, there was a famine in the land. So Jacob sent his sons uh, into Egypt to buy some grain because that's the only place there was grain left. And lo and behold, the young brother that they had earlier sold into slavery and told dad a wild animal killed him. They find out eventually is number two in command in Egypt. And his name is Joseph. Anyway, Joseph, by the end of Genesis, says that which you brothers meant for evil, God meant for good. And he brought down Jacob, his aged father, and all of his brothers and all their family. Seventy people went into Egypt. But it says after the time of Joseph, there arose a Pharaoh that didn't remember Joseph or any of the things that he had done. Another dynasty had come to power. And they were so intimidated by the rapidly multiplying Israelis that they enslaved them. And it was that group of people that Moses would eventually lead out. But they were in, their total time from the time of Jacob to the time of their deliverance under Moses was 430 years. And that's what Paul's referring to here, not from the time of Abraham to the time that they received the law, now the 430 years of the time that they were in captivity in Egypt. <clears throat> but what he's saying is the promises God had previously given aren't nullified by the giving of the law. Uh, Look down here at at verse um, 17. What I mean is this, the law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise that is given to Abraham. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on a promise, but God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. You know, the promise of the deliverer goes way back before the time of Abraham we have realized that promise because Christ has come man that is good news so the promise was given the promise reaffirmed to Abraham that it was through his line and descendants that the messiah would come we know that messiah to be Jesus now we look back 2,000 years and say thank you Lord for what you've done but the promise is still in effect you want to be saved all you got to do is give your heart and life to Jesus Christ. Accept his finished work for you. You too can inherit heaven, and you can't add a thing to it. Not church membership or baptism or rosary or nothing else. Statues that you, whose feet you kiss. I mean, think of the hygiene issues that accompany that anyway. How many people have kissed that statue? Good grief. You know, I, I, I'm not going to lay in lips on that thing. Well, verse 19 Uh, he's going to tell us now then what the purpose of the law is and the purpose of the law the reason god gave it in the first place was to convict us as sinners and we weren't saved by keeping the law the law didn't serve that purpose it showed us that we were sinners but like the mirror in my bathroom was unable to do anything about our condition verse 19 what then was the purpose of the law It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. It was kind of a schoolmaster for us, telling us about God and convicting us with our failures until Jesus could come. The promise of grace was not forsaken. It simply was put on hold until the Messiah, the seed of Abraham, would come. The law was put into effect through angels by a mediator. That mediator was Moses. He's the one who went up to Mount Sinai and received the law. Remember that? God gave it to him. It says the finger of God etched the law under these two tablets of stone. Wow. And if you remember watching Charlton Heston, comes down from the movie, they're all partying down there, and he goes, and he busts him, and he goes, oops, didn't mean to do that. Angry moment there and goes back up, gets another set of tablets. Gracious God. But the law was meant to convict us of our sins. Isn't it ironic that even as Moses comes down from the mountain, the people are in sin and in violation of the law that was just moments before written. The purpose of the law. Verse 20, a mediator, however, does not represent just one party, but God is one. Moses was a mediator of sorts, mediating between the people and God. The law was given to him, mediated by angels. He served as a mediator, but a very imperfect one. If you read in in, uh, the first five books of the Old Testament, you'll catch much of the life of Moses. And while a very humble and godly man, not a perfect man, any more than you or I. So he makes the argument then is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. Is it opposed to the grace of deliverance that was given to Abraham? No, absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, eternal life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. It didn't, it couldn't. That's not the purpose of the law. It's like trying to shave with your bathroom mirror. That's not its purpose. Its purpose is to show you your condition, but it's powerless to do anything about it. The law shows me I'm a sinner. Now what? Well, you better line up the animals. Oh, great. What do you do when you slit the throat of your last sacrificial animal? You throw yourself on the floor and on your face and you go, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And that's how you're saved. The blood of the bulls and goats and animals covered over symbolically the sins of the people. You remember on the Day of Atonement, once a year the high priest would go into the temple and on the mercy seat of God, he would pour out blood upon the mercy seat. Well, blood, if you know anything about it, it congeals. And it hardens. Quite frankly, when you have a, when you have a spot of blood on your hand or your arm or someplace that you've cut, if you just leave it alone, it will harden all by itself. The platelets in there make sure that it bonds over, and the fibrinogen in there form together this this matrix that makes a scab over the top of that. And so you can just imagine that dried blood then in the holy of holies, as the high priest year after year pours more blood, more blood, more blood. It's just caked up on there over time. You're thinking, that's gross. Yeah. It didn't take away sins. It just symbolically covered them up until Christ could come. Now Christ takes away our sins. Hallelujah. There's nothing piling up anymore on the mercy seat of God or in heaven. When you get up there, how many of your sins are forgiven? Thank you, Jesus. Oh, my I mean, it would be enough if he said, I'll forgive all your past sins, but you're on your own from now on. That would have been enough. It would have been millions of sins. But because he said on the cross, it is finished. That means he paid the price for all of my sins, past, present, and future. If he didn't die for all of your past, present, and future sins, then he's got to go back to the cross and, and die all over again because he did, his blood wasn't sufficient to cover over your future sins. But my Bible says in Hebrews, Christ died once for how much sin? All sin. Let me, let me just give you a lesson in Greek here. What does all mean in Greek? All. Isn't that profound? all of your sins. It must include past, present, and future, because he's never gone back to the cross since. That does not give me the freedom to sin. In fact, if I properly understand grace, it puts a tear in my eye and my face on the carpet, because I know I deserve death. The wages of sin is death. Christ died in my place. It should have been me strung up on a cross. He took my place. And that should keep you and I from being legalistic Christians. I'm not better than anybody. You're not better than anybody. We should never be spiritually puffed up and prideful. In all that can be known in this universe, what percentage do you know? Nothing. Then don't act like you know something. If there's one thing I know, it is this. Jesus loves me, this I know for the Bible tells me so little ones to him belong I am weak but he is strong yes Jesus loves me, that's as complicated as your theology should ever get it's Jesus, and because of his love, because of his grace, because of this offer of Forgiveness and all you got to do is say yes. All you got somebody handing you a Christmas present, going, "You want this?" Only a fool would say, "Nah." Jimmy, yeah, you betcha, Steve. Really? You know, funny you mentioned that. That's my grandkids' favorite thing to go to sleep by is Papa, Papa singing, you know, Jesus loves me to him. Kathy woke me up one time, oh, this is a couple of years ago now. She woke me up and I said, what? What? Did I do? Was I like snoring or something? I don't snore. Only sinners snore. I don't <laughs> snore, you know? She wakes me up and I go, what, what, what? And she said, you were praying. And I said, no, I was sleeping. I was sleeping. I trust me on this. I was sleeping. She goes, no, you were praying in your sleep. And she said, I never heard you pray more beautifully in my whole life. You need to write down what you said. And I said, I was asleep. I don't know what I'm saying. You know, isn't it it funny how, you know, God meets us in the night, watches like that. Just little reminders of how much he loves us and how, how he responds to our childlike faith. My grandkids don't pretend to know anything. They know this Papa loves them with all of his heart. They know that. And whether they mess up or they're good boys, they know Papa's going to love them. He's going to love them. He's going to love them. He's going to love them. Yes, yeah, sometimes they're disciplined. You know, but if we can become like little children and understand our Heavenly Father, He loves you. He loves you. He loves you. He does not love you less when you mess up. Everybody else on this planet will. But God's love for you is unconditional, which means it's not dependent upon whether you're a good boy or a good girl or not. Who's good? None of us. All of our righteousness, Isaiah said, are as what filthy rags. I'm saved by grace, I'm kept by grace. And whether you're well educated or have no education, whether you're young or old, been walking with the Lord an hour or half a lifetime. Never forget that he's called you to be a little child. Didn't Jesus take the little children unto himself, put them on his lap and say, for such belongs the kingdom of God? Legalism has no witness to offer a sinful fallen world at all. They're already familiar with the law and they hate it. People that break the law in this world are called criminals. Okay? So a legalistic Christian who represents the law is universally hated by people out there. In fact, legalism, if we become legalistic Christians, can actually keep people from trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. They're going to look at us and go, man, I don't want to be nothing like that. But if you're loving and gracious and humble and childlike, all of a sudden the world goes, they're different. And then you can tell them it's not about religion, it's about relationship. Ed? That's why it's so important that we don't judge other people. Amen. Amen. You know, here's, here's what I offer. You don't, don't judge anybody. And here's, you probably got some problems. I mean, I think there's just a little bit of bigotry and racism in probably most of us. Where we think some people out there are more deserving of grace than others. That's called racism. That's called bigotry. It doesn't always attach itself to skin color. I mean, Sunni Muslims are killing Shiite Muslims. So Muslims kill Muslims, what kind of sense does that make, you know? You know, or, or African civil wars, I can't tell them apart. Or in World War II, uh, China and, and uh, Japan had a whole series of derogatory terms they used to describe each other, and I can't tell them apart. You know, and you go, but Satan is at work trying to create, create division over those kind of silly, silly things. But hatred and division, it's been around since, since Cain killed Abel nothing new under the sun. What you and I should be known for is love and grace and mercy. You don't pick on their sins. Oh, you're a homo. You're going to hell. They're going to hell because they haven't trusted in Jesus Christ. And it doesn't matter if they're an alcoholic or a drug dealer or a good person or a religious person or a a priest in a church, a pastor in a Calvary chapel. We all need grace. We're saved by grace, kept by faith. Nobody has kept the law. The Pope Oh, I just burst your bubble. The Pope hasn't kept the law. He's a man. He's a probably, probably a wonderful man, but he's just a man. Made in the image of Adam, like you and me. In other words, he's a sinful man saved by grace. And if he's called upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to save him, he's going to heaven. And it won't be the Catholic section of heaven. He's going to the same heaven you and I are going to be walking into. We're all just one big happy family. Got to remember that. All one big happy family. And like family, we have our spats, but we should get over them. You know, move on, move on. Well, anyway, we are. Mm-hmm. We're about verse. Yeah, we covered that. Um, what's the purpose of the law in verse 19 and verse 21? Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Not a chance not a chance. The law was necessary before Christ came to give man a covering for his sins through the animal sacrificial system just so man could continue to relate to God. His sins were covered over. Romans 4. In fact, the book of Romans quite frankly is kind of a hand in glove book with Galatians in Romans 4. Verse 13, it says, It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who depend on the law are heirs, faith means nothing, and the promise is worthless because the law brings the wrath of God. But where there is no law, there is no transgressions. You and I are no longer under the law. Thus, there are no more transgressions. Christ died to secure that. It's not a license to sin. If you understand grace, it'll keep you from sin. Ty? That's right. Only one that's right. That so that's, a, that's a perfect point you make, Ty. In fact, Jesus said that in Matthew 7, didn't he? He said, "Think not that I've come to abolish the law, but I've come that it might be fulfilled." I'm going to keep it. I'm going to keep every jot and tittle of it. Not one jot or tittle will pass away until it is all fulfilled. That's what the cross is all about. Damiano? Yeah, you know, back in the, in the first century, these guys called Pharisees in the time of Jesus who were wealthy businessmen that had some rabbinic training. There was about 6,000 Pharisees scattered throughout Israel in the time of Christ. But some of those guys, God, this is unbelievable, could quote the first entire five books of the Bible by memory. Oh my. Now, don't mistake what I just said. They didn't keep all the first five books of the Bible, but they could quote them from memory, thinking that that made them holy. That they had then earned God's approval. I mean, that's a tremendous amount of memorization, but it doesn't save you. That's not the purpose of the law. That's the mistake they made. So yes, some of those guys back then, you know, uh, you'll remember that Paul, before he became the great apostle Paul, uh, apostle of the Gentiles, before that he was Saul and had been rabbinically trained under the greatest teacher of the first century in, in Judaism, a guy named Gamaliel. Now, not, none that I know of. There may be some closet genius out there who's got that kind of memory, but... He's not over 50, I'll tell you that, because your memory <laughs> kind of takes a nosedive after 50. I'm, n- I'm not sure. But if it, even if there were, it could only lead to pride. Well, I can quote the first five books of the Bible. Can you? Does that make you spiritually superior? No, it makes you a puffed-up, prideful peacock is what that does. Means you, and if pride goes before a fall on a haughty spirit for destruction, Bronco, watch out because it's coming. You know, I, you and I should not be a prideful people. Based on that one scripture alone, pride goes before a fall, yeah, don't want to fall. I'm not saying, can I tell you what humility is? Humility is not thinking less of yourself, biblical humility is thinking of yourself. Less. It's not about you. Nobody wants to hear about you. Don't talk about you. You are not anybody's ticket to heaven. Let's talk about Jesus. Humility isn't thinking badly of yourself, it's not thinking of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. That's it. The issue is Jesus. It was for Paul in Romans chapter 7. Paul says, what shall we say then? Is the law sinful because it caused me to sin? Well, certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was if it had not been for the law. You know, what about conscience? That's an unstable indicator of right and wrong. It varies society to society, but the law was written in stone. For I would not have known what coveting was if the law had not said you shall not covenant. Covet, but sin seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment produced in me every kind of coveting. Let me just bring that down to an example. Have you ever gone somewhere, maybe a a public park in Colorado Springs, and you've seen a sign that says, Do not walk on the lawn? What's the first thing you think of? Walk on the lawn. Yeah, you're not going to tell me what to do. Watch this. Speed limit says 40. Yeah, I'm going to do 44. Watch this. You know, there's that sinful fallen nature in us that wants to push the envelope all the time, even though we know what the law is. <laughs> when I was driving out to the pastor's college, my daughter said, Dad, you're not going to do 75, are you? I said, well, that's the speed limit. It doesn't say it's the speed suggestion. It says it's the speed limit. No, Dad, you can do, you can do like eight or nine miles an hour over nobody's going to stop you. And I says, really? Did a cop ever tell you that? <laughs> no. Then I'm gonna do 75. You don't like it? Go to sleep. I got it on cruise control. I'm going to sleep. (laughs) Uh, You know, causes you to think about all those kind of things. You know, do I keep the law? Do I follow the speed limits? Do I buckle up the seat belts because it's the law? Should Christians keep the law? Should we set a good example for others to follow? Yeah, we shouldn't be known as lawbreakers. I'm a child. Before the throne of God, I want to do what pleases my heavenly Father. Well, Paul continues in that passage I was quoting out of Romans 7. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that this very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment deceived me. As soon as the Bible says don't lust, the first thing you want to do is lust. there hadn't been a law, then I wouldn't have been convicted in my conscience of that. So then the law is holy, Paul says, and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. My problem, I can't keep it. I can't keep it. I've never been able to keep it. So It's convicted me of being a lawbreaker. Who then shall set me free from this body of sin and death? Christ Jesus. That's, that's the answer. And Paul says that if we can go on back to Galatians 3 in verse... Uh, 20, a mediator, however, does not represent just one party, but God is one. That mediator, he's he's referring there to Moses, our mediator between the law and God and us is Jesus. He kept the law perfectly. That's why you need to understand this doctrinal portion. Because if there is a tendency in you and I once saved, it is to become holier than thou. Self-righteous thinking that we know something, adding to the childlike faith that we've expressed in Christ Jesus. And we can veer off of that path of love and grace and mercy and childlike faith instantly. And I don't want to do that. It will harm me. It will harm those that I'm trying to to minister to by the power of, of God's Holy Spirit. He asks a series of rhetorical questions starting there. In verse 21, is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. The 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 purpose of the law, it was not to make you righteous. It can't. It can show you that you are unrighteous, but it's not capable of imparting to you the perfection that God requires. Nothing wrong with the law. The problem's with us. We didn't keep it. But Scripture declares that the whole world, verse 22, is a prisoner of sin because everybody in this world has sinned. So that what was, pr- what, hmm, what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. That's it. That's how Abraham was saved. It says he believed God and God counted it to him as righteousness. Before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up, in our sin, if you will, until faith should be revealed. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. Paul's whole argument there in, in verse 23 is this, and he uses an interesting word that the law was a school teacher. A pedagogue is what the original language uh, says that uh, it it was put in charge over us. If you can look at verse 24, so the law was put in charge and that translates a Hebrew uh, term and was given supervision over us, if you will, in other translations and down in verse 25. But it translates the Greek pedagogos, which means literally child discipliner. The law was a child discipliner or child leader. Some have translated it schoolmaster. But the idea behind this argument that Paul is making is not so much that it's a schoolmaster to teach us something. Certainly it does teach us something about God and the unrighteousness of man. But that was not the primary intent of the law. The primary intent was to lead us. Christ In the the Greek and Roman world, the pedagogue was the slave, the servant in the household, who was in charge not only of the education but moral upbringing of minor children. But get this, once the minor children came to adulthood, the law no longer applied. That's the point. It's not that it taught us anything. the, the, The thrust of the word pedagogue is not teaching. There's a different Greek word for teacher, didaskalos. Uh, I'm a pastor teacher by the will of God, but the law was meant to take young infants that knew little, bring them to adulthood to a point, and after that the law had nothing to do with them. It can only bring us so far. It could bring us to an awareness of our sin. It could bring us to an awareness of the holiness of God, but couldn't save us. It brought us to Christ. That's where we, at the foot of the cross, is where we found love and grace and mercy and forgiveness and a sacrifice for my sins that I could not pay. That was the purpose of the law, to drive us, if you will, to the foot of the cross, to show us that we were in need of him. So Paul's argument doesn't hinge upon the extent or the nature of the pedagogue's authority, but on the the fact that it its authority wholly ceased when the child became an adult. The best way to translate that word isn't schoolmaster, but babysitter. The law was a babysitter when you were a baby, okay? But now you've reached adulthood in your faith and come to faith in Jesus Christ. The law has served its purpose. It's a babysitter. But by and large, as a general rule, most adults... There may be some exceptions here. Most adults don't need babysitters anymore. It has served its purpose. That's what the law was. It was a babysitter. My wife would tell you sometimes I need a babysitter. Okay, fine. But the law served its purpose in bringing us to Christ. That was the whole purpose of the law. (sighs) Mission accomplished. Mission accomplished. I'm not saved by trying to keep the Ten Commandments or the 603 other ones that are listed there. Jesus has fulfilled the law completely. I'm saved by grace, kept by grace, walking in his mercy. I am good to go. So you know what? I have no conscience at all when I eat a hot dog. It was condemned in the Old Testament as an unclean mixed meat, couldn't do it. You know, I eat pork, thank God for bacon. If I was a good Jew still living under the law, bacon condemned you to hell. Really? Anybody in here never tasted bacon? You're all hell bound can't trust in the law to save you you're all going to hell you ate bacon really is that the purpose of the law nah bacon doesn't have nothing to do with it jesus would say it's not what you put in your mouth that makes you unclean it's what comes out of it uh, okay the purpose of the law the law taught us where we failed to meet god's standards it made us realize how our sin separated us From God and how impossible it was for us to be righteous on our own. The law showed us our need for Christ. When we're justified, God imputes Jesus' righteousness to us. Not my own. I couldn't keep the law. I got no righteousness. The righteousness that I have today has been imputed to me. It's been given me by Christ Jesus. That's the mistake the religious leaders made in Jesus' time. They acted like they'd never sinned. There are still some denominations out here to the present day that say you can reach a place of sanctification where you don't sin anymore. You know, I can tell you this. You let me follow you around. You let me shadow you for 24 hours with a legal pad and a pen. I'll list every sin you commit. Okay? Hey, I mean, you could do that with me. You could do that with anybody. You could do that with the Pope. Okay? Okay. So anybody that says they don't sin anymore, they're either self-deceived or they are lying. They are lying like a dog. Dogs lie down. Anyway, I'll explain it to you later. The law could not remove sin. The law could not remove guilt. The law could not remove shame. Only the cross of Jesus Christ could do that. That's why I love being a Christian. I would have hated to have been born the other side of the cross. Because when I slit the throat of my last sacrificial animal, i would go, oh man, I'm doomed. I'm doomed. Maybe I could steal some sheep. Well, that's breaking the law. I can't do that. Okay, what do I do? You beat your breast and you say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner, like the tax collector in the temple did. He's the guy who walked away justified, Jesus said. Not the Pharisee, the law keeper. That's the mistake the religious leaders of Jesus' day made. They They thought they were saved by keeping the law because if they kept the law, then God would owe them. He'd have to save them. They earned it. They deserved it. And pride is the inevitable result of that. Look at me. Ain't I religious? Ain't I holy? Uh, none of the above. The law has served its purpose in driving us to Christ. So verse 26 then is where the good news of that fact really begins. This is our position now. This is who we really are. We're not sinners. We're not lawbreakers, but we're saved by faith, kept by faith, sons and daughters, adopted into God's own family because the barrier of our sins that had separated us from God has been removed. I mean, you're not just saved. You've been adopted. Do you know what they do in the state of Colorado when you adopt a kid? They take your old birth certificate and they rip it up right in front of you. Rip, rip, that's not you anymore. And you're given a new identity. What a perfect picture of our being reborn in Christ Jesus. We're adopted into God's family. So he takes that old sin certificate of yours and he rips it up right in front of you. He goes, there. You're a son, you're a daughter. Whoo! hallelujah. Now what happens when you mess up? Well, you may break fellowship with the father, but you don't stop being a son or a daughter. Those of you that have kids... You ever have a fight with your kid and the kid goes upstairs and slams the door and says, I don't love you anymore. I don't want you to be my parents anymore. You're tough. You're stuck. You're my kid. I'm your parent. Deal with it. You know, just because there's been a break in the fellowship doesn't mean they're no longer the son or the daughter. It means there's a brand of breach in the fellowship. Thank you, Tracy. That can that needs to be mended. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ, He's not referring to physical water baptism, but spiritual baptism. All of you who were baptized into Christ have participated in his death and burial and resurrection, have clothed yourselves with Christ. And in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. For all, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, truly. You're his progeny. You're his offspring. Because he was saved by faith, you're saved by faith. He was kept by faith, believing the promises of God, and so you and I are. And heirs according to the promise. You're, you've got an inheritance coming. Have you ever wished you had an old uncle who was about ready to die and was filthy rich and really liked you? You know, I think we've all wished we had those kind of relatives. Most of us grew up, and uh, every one of my family members, they were broker than me. You know, they weren't going to leave me nothing but good wishes. Imagine being an heir of all of the promises that God gave Abraham and an heir of Christ Jesus Himself. We're going to inherit everything that Jesus owns. What does Jesus own? Everything in the universe. I've got an inheritance coming that surpasses any rich uncle's uh, possessions that he could ever bequeath to me. You know, Jesus removes the distinctions that divide people into superior and inferior groups. You know, J.K. Excuse me, G.K. Chesterton, an English preacher of 150 years ago, said this one time. He said, for religion, all men are equal as all pennies are equal because on they have the only value in any of them is that they bear the image of the king. Isn't that cool that All pennies are equal. We're all pennies. We're all equal, and the only thing that gives us value is the imprint of the king on our lives. I thought that was a brilliant statement by an aged pastor from long ago. Aristotle, a Greek philosopher that predates him by thousands of years, uh, said, "Some people were fit only to be slaves." I disagree. My Bible says all of us have been made in the image of God and God is wanting to redeem that image. But I reject slavery not only on its grounds of immorality. I reject slavery because I see no men fit to be masters. Just one. And I'm his slave and I'm proud to be described as that. The law the law was rules and regulations and do's and don'ts it resulted in legalism it led to pride people taking credit for it because they had earned god's merit and that god becomes a debtor to them because they had become so holy but the law only led to condemnation that's why you and i must never be legalistic christians but being saved by the spirit of the living god by our faith in christ jesus Ah, we're not saved by keeping rules, we're saved by grace. I love it. We're not given a whole list of do's and don'ts because love has already kept all of those do's and don'ts perfectly in Christ Jesus. Legalism is totally opposed to grace. There's no pride. In fact, realizing you're saved by the Holy Spirit of God through grace, through faith, will humble you because you didn't earn it and you don't deserve it. It'll always humble you. Can't make you prideful. Instead of you taking credit for it by the keeping of the law, being saved by the Spirit of the Lord, it results in thankfulness and gratitude in our heart. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for saving me. Couldn't save myself. Whereas a legalist can take credit for making himself holy, I can take credit for what? Nothing. So I give all glory and honor and praise to him for not being the person I used to be. God becomes my debtor if I'm a law keeper and I've earned his approval, but my Bible says God is a debtor to no man. It doesn't work that way. Under the law, I was condemned under Christ Jesus because of his grace and his favor, his love and mercy and forgiveness. There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. Satan condemns you and I all the time. We often condemn each other all the time. Oh, you failed here, you failed there. Oh, if you were just the husband you were supposed to be. Oh, if you were just a better wife. You know, we're all about, we're a mess. We're a hot mess, all of us. The best of us, we're a hot mess, okay? We're not trying to be a hot mess. It just comes with the flesh. But I'm not trying to walk in the flesh anymore. I'm trying hard to walk in the power of God's Holy Spirit. That's why I read my Bible every day. That's why I pray every day. Because there's a lot of work that still needs to be done in Jim Etheridge. But how much needs to be done in you? I'll make a deal with you. I won't find any fault in you if you promise not to find any fault in me. Okay? Saved by grace. Kept by grace. What say we look at each other and say, son or daughter of God? Child of the King. Huh? Perfect and holy, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. A hot mess? Yeah, but so what? That's not my identity. It's who I am in Christ Jesus that really counts. Well, let's stand and close together in prayer, shall we? I'm so grateful for grace, aren't you? Oh, man, oh, man, oh, man. Father God, I thank you so much for the law. Because as soon as I realized it existed, I was condemned. What do I do with that shame and guilt and condemnation? I fall on my knees and confess myself a sinner in need of grace. And there at the foot of the cross, I looked up and saw Jesus. And I heard those kind words, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Your blood washed over me, Lord Jesus. Your blood was shed so that I might live with you forever. The wages of sin is death. Somebody had to die. You took my place. And all eternity won't be long enough to say thank you. Grace humbles me. Grace isn't a license for sin. It moves in me powerfully to keep me from sin. I want to live a life that's pleasing to you, Father. I know I mess up. Forgive me when I do. Fill us with your Holy Spirit and help us to walk in love and joy and peace and patience all the days of our lives keep us from legalism we are humbly in your debt forever and humbly acknowledge you as our lord god shepherd and savior father